Hi everyone. My name is Rigby Wallace and I'm privileged to serve on the leadership team of Common Ground Church across this great city of Cape Town. It's my real privilege and joy to be preaching God's word to you uh, right here near the end of 2020. The title of the message is One Thing I Do, and you'll see that it comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, and we're going to read together these words. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What an amazing passage, pregnant with uh, life-giving meaning and encouragement. By way of introduction, wherever you're seated today, whether you're in a, a gathering or whether you're at home, we share one common uh, reality. We all have a thing called a worldview. A worldview is our view of the world. It's like a lens through which we interpret the world. Our worldview is largely informed by where we've come from, our past, what we're exposed to right now in our present, and also our sense of the future. And this helps to shape the kind of person we're becoming. It shapes our identity and our sense of self. But our worldview in turn is informed by, from multiple sources. We're shaped by culture, uh, more powerfully than we're aware, and the many, many other voices in our media and social media. Now, at the beginning of 2020, we went on a journey together as we, we kind of uh, condensed our vision for this year into, into essentially one great goal. And that goal was to intentionally uh, become a certain kind of person. And that kind of person was a person who would increasingly resemble none other than the glorious head of the church, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't do better than following Jesus Christ. You can't do better than following the one who is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, uh, the Alpha and the Omega the one who is the Lord of all of history. And as we've looked to him in this year, many of us have, have been deeply challenged, have made progress. The Mark series that, Mark, uh, that Luke, together with the preaching team, have put together has been highly intentional around uh, uh, ravishing our hearts uh, and our lives and our minds with the person of Jesus Christ. And we realized that to become more like Jesus, essentially were three tracks. We needed to be with him, 
presence. We needed to uh, become more like him uh, in terms of progressive transformation. And we still at the same time needed to get on and do what Jesus did in terms of uh, mission and service into this world in and through his church. And that's what we set our hearts to in 2020. And of course, the more we follow Jesus, the more we find ourselves following him in the scriptures. And the more we follow him in the scriptures by exposure to his timeless word and wisdom, the more we find ourselves being aligned to his worldview. We start to see the world not through uh, the shallow lenses of culture. We start to see it through the grace-filled lenses, the hopeful lenses of the eternal Son of God. And then, of course, near the beginning of this year, around about March, <laughs> uh, earlier in other parts of the world and later in others, a tiny little virus appeared on the scene and turned everything upside down. And yes, we've had to practice all the health protocols because there is definite danger in being exposed to this virus. And might I, at this time, on behalf of all our Common Ground family, uh, exhort us to do all we can to stay safe, to wear our masks, etc., etc., where it's appropriate. But there's a greater danger than being exposed to the virus. It's the danger of being exposed by the virus. This potentially has been a gift for us in our journey to become more like Christ. It's been a gift for measuring our maturity when the world in so many senses of our experience has, uh, has been in a, in a, in a state of... of uh, of, uh, it's of, of disequilibrium, a sense of being shaken in the sense of so many parts of the world in freefall from the economics, the politics, the, uh, the, 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 the realities of uh, loss of loved ones. And I just want to say it right now to everyone who has suffered the loss of a loved one or who has uh, lost a job or... Uh, has been very severely impacted by this season. Our hearts really do go out to you. And I'm hoping that this message will become uh, a source of great comfort to you. But as we've been exposed to this virus, there's also the potential to have our character flaws uh, uh, revealed, as well as our addictions to comfort and the idols of 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 privilege and entitlement. And what can happen is, is a sense of drift uh, uh, is experienced as we drift away from these essential uh, disciplines of following Jesus Christ. Now, very recently, I've been exposed to some research from the Barna Institute in America, and they've been referencing the American Bible Society. And this is hot off the press. Uh, their research showed that at the beginning of 2020, uh, close to 71 million Americans were engaged with the Bible. But by the first week of June, 13.1 million of those people 
were no longer consistently interacting with the Bible in a way that shaped their choices and transformed their relationships with God and others. Got me thinking about how much of that might have shaped the recent elections and the polarization there. There was a drop of uh, from from 27.8% to 22.6% of believers who were intentionally engaging with the scriptures. And researchers divided the people into five different uh, uh, scripture engagement segments based on their level of interaction with the Bible. So here we can try and place ourselves in these categories. There was what they called Bible disengagement. We don't go near the book. And I want to say to those of you who are not yet Christ followers, this is a book that will surprise you uh, in, 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 in so many ways. I want to encourage you to, to take a risk and read the Bible. But then there are others who are Bible neutral, not really into it, but sort of not picking a fight with it. And then there's some who are Bible friendly, and others who are Bible engaged, and others who are Bible centered. And here's the conclusion. For both the Bible engaged and Bible centered segments, they saw drops at 4.3 million people and 9.7 million people respectively. I think that describes, in biblical language, the drift away from uh, ultimate truth and ultimate reality and the drift toward being powerfully influenced by secularism uh, in ways that push God to the margins of life. Now, what is Paul's big idea in the passage that we're working with? He's calling us to forget what's behind and strain toward what's ahead. And uh, basically, there are two big ways to do that. The one is, I've given it the heading, reflecting by, by looking back. And by looking back, we have to do two things. We need to uh, f- remember some good things and we need to forget some other things. And then he's talking about second big track is to anticipate, look forward, to give ourselves wholeheartedly to a future under God and to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of us. And so uh, when I think of my own uh, walk and Sue and I, as we've, uh, my wife, as we've grappled with some of our own challenges, there have been times when our reflections have not, have not drawn us uh, uh, to, toward aiming higher. We just wanted relief from some of the difficulties. We, wanted, we were soft on ourselves where God was calling for deeper formation and discipleship into a, a higher level of maturity. We found ourselves craving stability where after God was going after our progress. There have been a few times where we've had to raise the white flag and say, sorry, Lord. And so for all of us, uh, I hope today will serve as a, a little a bit of an invasion into our thinking uh, that we'd feel this upward pull on our lives to this one thing, 
Paul describes that he does. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what's ahead. Have you noticed the maths? Paul seems to have a little bit of a problem with maths. He says, there's one thing I do, and then he lists a whole lot of stuff. But uh, really what he's doing is he's bringing everything. The one thing is actually the sum of, of many things with a unifying goal. The unifying goal is, uh, is, uh, is that we would forget what's behind, that we'd uh, intentionally move to what's ahead in a healthy way. So let's kick off first with a little bit of a deeper dive at, at, uh, at this call to reflection firstly. It has two sides, as I mentioned, remembering and, and forgetting. Let's just hit that remember button quickly. In Ephesians 2.11, Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made, by, uh, made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated. He's telling us, remember that you were with these Gentiles who were rejected. Now he says, remember that you were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. It's important that we remember what we were and what God has done in Christ to, to reconcile us to himself. We were having no hope and without God in this world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Maybe a few things that we should remember, uh, not as far back as our conversion, but in this very season of COVID, maybe some, some remembering uh, lessons for us from lockdown. The people of God in the Old Testament were really good at remembering things and applying it to their current journey. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, everything that happened to Israel was written down as warnings and as examples for us upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. In other words, we should look back and say, what lessons apply? And yes, we could go back and learn from Israel in the wilderness, but we could also just go back to COVID and say, what are some of the lessons? And here are a quick five that I want to share with him, with, with all of us. We're learning to acknowledge our limits. Lesson number one. The world is more broken, fractured, polarized than it's ever been. It's never been more uncertain the utopian dreams that have been promised to us uh, with the myth of progress are all in free fall and this tiny, little hum uh, this tiny little virus has humbled us. And as we've acknowledged our limits, we've at the same time become more and more aware of God's sufficiency and that he is enough and will always be enough. A second lesson is we're learning to surrender control we actually have so little control, if we're honest, around the circumstances and events of our lives in this past season. But isn't it interesting? God has not given us control, and he never is going to cede control to us. God has given us responsibility to live in a certain way, to read his word, to align to his worldview. He's called us to live out our responsibilities but we'll never ever yield, which, but even our best effort at that will never yield 
the most perfect outcomes. We need to trust and affirm God's control and power and sovereignty over the events of history. Thirdly, we're learning to slow down and build margin into our lives. That's one of the big gifts of we've had more time with husbands and wives and with children. I know it's been interrupted with work-school dynamics and the uncertainty and all of that. But if we're honest, we've had a lot more time to have meaningful conversations. That's really true for Sue and I, who uh, have, have taken to Scrabble and walks and all kinds of things that have formed regular part of our friendship. And of course, praying together, we've slowed down enough. There's a French musician who defined music as the space between the notes. Just think about it. If there was no space between the notes, what would you have? Noise. And that's the reality of the pace of the 21st century. It has been so, so busy and we've been going at such a pace and suddenly the world has slowed down and we found some margin. We found some space between the notes to reflect, to think, to enjoy. Fourth lesson we're learning is uh, that God has a maturity agenda for our lives. Some of the way we have uh, built our lives and our careers and the things we've aspired to uh, have, uh, have in many uh, instances produced a shallow faith, if we've honest. Uh, the truth, though, is that in the season of hardship, some of us who have not had strong foundations have found that drift even more powerfully at work in our lives. But those who have been intentional about following Jesus, becoming more like Jesus, doing what Jesus, they've kind of muscled up and got even more mature. One of our prayer times, somebody shared this prophetic picture of, of, a, of a, a bicycle that's given to little children with balancing wheels. And what happens when you take the balancing wheels off, a child starts to use muscles they didn't know they had. And my sense is that in this very tough season we're in and hopefully we'll emerge out of in the not too distant future, we're having to exercise some spiritual muscles, prayer muscles, servant muscles, listening muscles, uh, uh, even lamenting muscles. These are things that we're, we're, we're maturing in as we go through the season. And the last thing we're learning as a lesson from lockdown is that we're learning that truth matters. We're learning that we're needing to silence the voice of culture, which is so loud and is often so anxiety-inducing. God's voice should be the loudest in our lives. And yet we underestimate just how deeply we swim in the waters of culture. We underestimate the effects of truth decay. We underestimate, underestimate the possibility of being colonized by anxiety, fake news, anger, polarization, because our minds are flirting with unreality. Instead of building the muscle of alignment to God's worldview and ultimate truth, but the other thing, as we go on to the text at hand, Paul also calls us to forget. And the question is, what are we to forget? Well, we're to forget what is behind, 
he says in verse 13b. But the Old Testament version of that is in Isaiah 43, 18 to 19. It says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the desert. My dear friends, Isaiah doesn't say forget the bad things or forget the good things. He says forget the former things. And I think that's what Paul, Paul is getting, has in mind when he says forget the former things, what's behind. Don't dwell on the past. Don't be preoccupied with that. Earlier on in the chapter, Paul goes on this uh, uh, at length about his own spiritual uh, pedigree, that he was, uh, you know, a Pharisee, that he, uh, you know, essentially he's actually sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest rabbis in Israel. He had all of that religious pedigree. And then he says, I count it all as rubbish. Some translations say, I count it all as dung compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Paul is arguing there comes a time where sometimes we have to push back or leave behind, as it were, some of our own kind of pedigree. Some of you seated here today were head boys and head girls or prefects or you accomplished something in the back, captain of the rugged team or the netball team or whatever it is. Uh, maybe uh, in the academic world, you were just absolutely brilliant. Paul seems to say none of that will ultimately define what it's helped and we don't want to despise it, but he warns against the stardust of the past. He warns against being dazzled by all the good stuff and uh, past achievements, whether before you became a Christ follower or after. He's saying, forgetting what is behind, forget the former things. And that's part of what our reflecting should, should do. We should be uh, remembering what matters, but we should also forget some stuff that can be de de debilitating for our lives. We're ultimately to forget all the stuff that distracts us from the thing that God is doing in our lives and is about to do. He wants us to leave behind anything that blurs that sense of the ultimate prize. It's like driving that motor car. You've heard me say this over and over. The rear view mirror needs to be small. And the windscreen of the future needs to be large. But we need that rearview mirror, but we can't live life where the rearview mirror is the size of the windscreen and our sense of future is the size of the rearview mirror. Well, as we move along, uh, the second big thing is, yes, uh, we do have to reflect by remembering and forgetting, but then we need to anticipate. And this is really important who God really is and who I really am, these are only understood, not just in the light of the past and the present, but in the light of our biblically informed future too. Who will I be? Who will you be? The point is the future shapes me as much as the past or present, maybe even more. 
And we see it in those verses, this one thing, I do, forgetting what is behind, but I'm straining toward what is ahead. I'm pressing on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. There's no fatalism here. There's intentional anticipation with effort. And the two challenges that we need to overcome in the realm of anticipation. We need to help people more so now than ever. We need to be helped that our and their future, we need to help them anticipate their future, sorry, which is key pastorally to the well-being of everyone in our city and everyone in our nation. The despair and anxiety in our nation, so much of it is to do with we can't see a future. And yet Paul is saying, there is a glorious future. And perhaps what you've experienced in this season or maybe in past decades in your mind is beyond despair. And yet I want to eyeball you today and say you still do have a future. You have a vast unbroken, radiant promise. You have a glory to be revealed in, in, in you and in me that far outweighs these light and momentary troubles. I've been deeply uh, shaped by a book written by Mark Buckingham, a book called The Rest of God, and he's got a chapter where he describes uh, helping somebody whose past was so brutal uh, and his skill set uh, so inadequate. And he captures their counseling encounter as follows. I sat one day with a young woman who had a desolate past, a blighted landscape of childhood neglect and, and sexual abuse. And stemming from this, the, uh, the many broken promises of her bad choices. She poured out her story and I sat speechless. And now I should say what? I prayed one of my desperate prayers, oh God, oh God, oh God. And then God slipped me an insight. Timely as manna dropped from the sky. He showed me that her past was beyond repair, at least on my watch. If there was any good thing there to salvage, I knew not how. But in the same instant, God showed me that she still had a future and it was vast, unbroken, pristine and radiant. It was a pure promise, a glory that would be revealed in her, a glory that far outweighed her light and momentary troubles. The glory of the one who was coming to redeem her and transform her. Transform her. her past was a tragedy to lament, but her future was an epic to anticipate, which is simply to say, what will happen matters more. What will happen matters more than what has happened. The emotional scars from our past and often the addictions used to hide the pain can be released when Jesus comes into our lives. Jesus said, the truth shall set you free. And if the truth and if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, my dear friends, the truest definition of freedom is really essentially having a new master. 
He's the least tyrannical master in the universe. He is so kind. He's so powerful. He's so good. This one went to the cross to die for us. And we read in Philippians 3 verse 20 that we have a citizenship in heaven and we eagerly await the Savior from there. The person who frees us here in the, in the present is waiting for us in the future. But notice the language of Paul. We eagerly await. That is the language of anticipation. What will happen matters more than what has happened. And God has power to take us at our lowest and change us into people who resemble him. Friends, what you see is not what you get. What you see around us and in this life and in your own, when, you, when you're uh, discouraged about yourself and your progress, what you see will vanish, never to reappear. What is coming is permanent and it endures forever. And this is the last big point as we come into land. We have to help people not just uh, in their anticipate their future, we also have to help them get free from the tyranny of nostalgia. It's equally dangerous. And if we are to go into the past, we, ha- we have to learn how to remember in a helpful way. And nostalgia is maybe one of the biggest, most damaging things. And we all, we all like to, uh, in some ways, uh, affirm each other by that sort of quaint trait, that nice sense of, oh, I'm a little more nostalgic, you know, like, uh, like all the things my uh, mother used to do for me when I was young. I'm nostalgic about places I've been to. And, and, but there's a spiritual version of that that's very, very dangerous. Mark Buchanan, in the book I'm referring to, he says, I think nostalgia is really... Uh, misplaced anticipation. Nostalgia is expectancy in reverse. It is our instinct for heaven rummaging around in the storage closet, hoping that our heart's true desire is in there somewhere, hidden amid a clutter of keepsakes and accumulated debris. He defines nostalgia as memory run amok. I heard somebody else years back say, we glorify the past when the future dries up. It sounds like Israel in the wilderness longing for the leeks and, and onions of Egypt instead of the promised land. There's a French uh, psychologist years back, 15 years back in the Common Ground story, we gathered around a book called The Adventure for Living. And uh, one of the great quotes from this book from uh, Paul Tournier is it's a dangerous thing to live with your golden years in the past. Explains uh, this thing of nostalgia with these words. We all have somewhere in our memory banks a treasure trove of golden days when things were, in our estimation, as good as they could ever get. Buchanan says, if we don't fathom that the beauty of those days is but a rumor of heaven in the future, We'll make a fetish out of the rumor and miss what it's pointing to. We'll try to cling to the beauty of those good old golden days and resent their fading. 
Let's take a deeper look at this thing of nostalgia. Hopefully we can declare war on it if it's inhibiting us and keeping us back from giving ourselves to the God-sized future that he has for us. He goes on to say, we all know that the past was never as clean and bright as we remember it. Nostalgia paints history with gold, just as unforgiveness paints it black. Nostalgia, besides being misplaced expectancy, is also second cousin to unforgiveness. But both unforgiveness and nostalgia share the trait of an unreconciled past. Nostalgia is a vain attempt to reconcile the past through longings, whereas unforgiveness is a doomed attempt to reconcile it through bitterness. The past is actually only ever reconciled and resolved through four things. Thankfulness, forgiveness, acceptance, and repentance. Those four things. Most of us have a reason or two when we try to reconcile the past in these other ways through reminiscence and vengeance. But all we find if we're noticing is it makes the past accumulate, not resolve. It makes history's hand on us heavy, not light, confining, not liberating. The past ends up claiming us in ways that God never intended it to. Rather than imparting clear identity that shapes destiny, it twists and and thwarts destiny. Nostalgia and unforgiveness both do this. In fact, said Buchanan, One easily becomes the other. This is pretty sharp. He who waxes nostalgic will usually in time turn bitter about how the past won't return to him. She who nurses unforgiveness will usually in time pine for some pristine beginning, some imagined prehistory before all the trouble began. Friends, when our memories make us less able to engage the present and move hopefully into the future. It's a sign that nostalgia has held up our memory banks and robbed us of the divinely intended use of our capacity for healthy remembering. So the provocation is to us this. When we can remember and be moved with simple, profound gratitude and be free to trust that same God to offer us more good, even though it will be different as we move into our future, different good experiences in the present and on into the future. It is a sign that God is at work. It is a sign that his spirit is filling and using our memories that is created in each one of us. Basically, we've been called to anticipate in the healthy, healthy way and bring our memories and our minds back to dreaming God's thoughts. Three big application questions. I hope you'll uh, audit your own life with me. Are you like Paul? Are you like me? That you're still learning to do one thing well. Are you learning to to forget what is behind and strain toward 
what is ahead? Are you learning to press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus? Three challenges from this message, from the depths of my heart, I want to ask us, will you, with humility and repentance, arrest the drift toward a secular and godless worldview? Would you use the next 30 days or so that are left of this year to reorientate your one and only life to the one and only person and to the one and only book that can shape you into the kind of person you were created to be? I hope you're saying, yes, I'm going to do that. Secondly, will you consider reconciling and resolving your past with those four things that Buchanan mentioned through thankfulness, forgiveness, acceptance, and repentance. Let me say it again. You can't change the past, but there are four things you can do to reconcile yourself to it. Thankfulness, forgiveness, acceptance, and repentance. They're not in any order. You may have to start somewhere else on that list. But those are the only four ways to reconcile and resolve your past. And finally, will you consider anticipating a new future by letting go of your past, particularly the debilitating sides, particularly the boasts of the past, particularly the dependence on, uh, on human ingenuity? Will you consider letting go or bringing your brokenness and pain and trust the one who's waiting for you? not just today, but tomorrow and into the future. We don't know what, the, what tomorrow will bring, but the certainty of this message and what we're learning and what Paul is uh, affirming is that Christ is waiting there for us and he's calling us to be free and I'm calling you. Accept the love of God in Christ Jesus. He came into this world to reach you and to reach me and to bring us home and all that we see in this world and all the best of this world are mere rumors of that coming age in greater fullness and greater glory. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, thank you for all that you've been to us and done for us in the past years and particularly in these past months. Thank you for the stories of your faithfulness, your comfort, your care. Thank you for your presence that has been real to so many who have suffered in this time. And thank you that you'll be nothing less than that into our future. Thank you that we can trust you to show your lavish goodness in new ways. Thank you that you are God, the God who makes all things new, the God who is preparing a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And thank you that we can be made new on the inside as we respond to this message, as we embrace your, your care, your truth, and as we say yes to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit.
Lord, I want to pray for those who have not yet put their faith in Jesus. I want to pray that they would be drawn to you in a way that is meaningful and real, whether it's in the motor car later today, a walk on the beach, a walk on the forest, or simply taking baby steps, reading the Bible, and reorienting our worldview to yours. So hear our prayer. Bless every person that's heard uh, the message today. Family and friends, we commend in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to your goodness, to your grace. Amen.